Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold uh, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. The confusion stops here. Last Sunday, I attended Mass in the ordinary form, which is unusual for me, but it was my number three son's confirmation Mass, and unfortunately our diocese does not offer confirmation in the old rite. But it was a happy coincidence that his confirmation should fall on the Sunday when, in the ordinary form, we read the Gospel from Matthew 16, where Jesus makes Peter the first pope. So later on in the program, we're going to look at how Matthew 16 relates to confirmation and the importance of the sacramental life. But first, last week we talked about the life and and many outstanding accomplishments of the great St. Bernard of Clairvaux, known as the Dr. Mellifluous and the Last of the Fathers. Bernard was, and I say this without fear of contradiction, the 12th century's man of the century. He was a papal advisor, uh, defender of the faith, uh, healer of schism, monastic reformer, virtually invented the uh, uh, institution of Christian chivalry. He was an unparalleled scripture scholar, theologian, a powerful and persuasive and astonishingly eloquent preacher. And any one of these accomplishments would have been enough to distinguish the man. But St. Bernard was all of this and more. And his life in the church was more active than we can even imagine, and in his efforts achieved far-reaching results. But he couldn't have done it without the many hours of contemplation that brought him strength and heavenly direction. St. Bernard himself put it this way. He said, Action and contemplation are very close companions. They live together in one house on equal terms. Martha and Mary are sisters. His life was particularly characterized by a deep devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and his sermons and books and prayers and hymns on the Blessed Virgin Mary remain to this day the gold standard of Marian theology. But as promised, I want to turn uh, this week to one of Bernard's most important challenges, which was his long-running debate with the scholastic theologian Peter Abelard. And we're not really going to talk about Uh, the meat of their debate, but really more the importance of theological debate and the different uh, approaches. And I'm going to be leaning very heavily on Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's catechesis from 2009, and I have uh, links up in the show notes so that you can check it out for yourself. Also, I would recommend um, looking at his Wednesday audiences back from 2009. He did a whole series, uh, Pope Benedict, on medieval saints and theologians, and the immense debt that we owe to the theology and uh, the sanctity of these men and women from the age of faith. And really, I, I, I think of that, and I, I see what's going on in the church, and I, I always think of the words of the prophet, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And that catechesis from Benedict XVI is real meat and potatoes, and so I, I recommend it highly. Anyway, back to the topic and backing up a little bit, there was a variety of factors um, that allowed for the flourishing of theology in the 12th century. Uh, And that flourishing really prepared the soil for the the great accomplishments of the 13th century, which honest historians still refer to as the greatest century, not only in terms of intellectual or technical advancement, but, but social advancement. This was the century of the hospital and the university 
and the birth of the scientific method and the Gothic cathedral and, and Francis of Assisi and Dominic and the rosary and uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologia. Um, and, it, and it is, you know, uh, because of this basis that we can speak of um, monastic and scholastic theology because it was the intense theology of the 12th century that laid the groundwork for all of that. And it happened in two spheres, the monasteries and the, uh, the schools, the scholae, which were typically attached to the great cathedrals in the big urban centers. Now, according to Pope Benedict XVI, and I'm quoting now, the representatives of monastic theology were monks, usually abbots, endowed with wisdom and evangelical zeal, dedicated essentially to inspiring and nourishing God's loving design. The representatives of scholastic theology were cultured men, passionate about research. They were magistry, that is to say teachers or masters, anxious to show the reasonableness and soundness of the mysteries of God and man, believed with faith, of course, but also understood by reason. Their different ends explain the differences in their method. <clears throat> Monastic theology, the theology of uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux or St. Bonaventure, was primarily biblical theology. So for the monastics, the Bible was interpreted allegorically in order to discover on every single page of both the Old and the New Testaments what it says about Christ and the work of salvation. And Bernard was the great exemplar of this monastic theology. He was a contemplative. You remember last week he said that all of his knowledge of theology, what he called the science of the scriptures, he learned in, in the woods and the fields. The oaks and the beeches were my only masters, he said. So for Bernard, theology flows from solitude and has as its goal a, a, a ever more intimate and ever deepening personal relationship with Christ through Lexio Divina, through contemplative prayer empowered by the Holy Spirit, at, at, rather than from the changing of opinions of human teachers. St. Bernard put it this way, he said, The man who is wise will seek to live his life more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. The reservoir retains the water until it is filled, then overflows without loss to itself. Today there are many in the church who act like canals. The reservoirs are far too rare. You must learn to await this fullness before pouring out your gifts. So the canal is like the scholastic who receives teaching from others and then passes it on while receiving uh, at the same time more new teaching and then passing that on and so on and so on, like water flowing through a canal. While a monastic fills himself with God's truth and then gives to others what overflows while he remains full. And Bernard says you should learn to await this fullness before pouring out your gifts. Is it any wonder that I love this guy? <laughs> now, these two approaches, you know, I, I'm a convert myself, and I teach RCIA, so I help, you know, assist other people in their conversion to Catholicism. And these two approaches, like I say, have a tendency to experience this in the process of conversion. Because we start by seeking to understand in order to believe, but then when you come uh, across these deeper mysteries, you realize you have to believe in order to understand. So theology for Bernard of Clairvaux has one purpose, to encourage the intense and profound and personal experience of God. 
Theology is therefore an aid to loving the Lord ever more, ever better. For Bernard, theology must be nourished by contemplative prayer. In other words, the effective union of the mind and heart with God. It's what St. Bernard called spiritual nuptials, where the soul is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. That kind of intimate relationship. Now, on the other side, you have uh, Peter Abelard, the famous scholastic, the talented, uh, dazzling intellectual who concerned himself first with philosophy and then applied that philosophy to the theology, which he taught in Paris, which was the, the uh, most cultured city of the time. He was immensely popular, and he drew huge crowds of students to his lectures. Now, in contrast to the contemplative Bernard, who desired nothing more than to return to the hidden life of the monastery, Abelard had a restless personality, and he liked the limelight. He challenged his teachers. He had a notorious affair with a prominent woman named Heloise, uh, which produced an illegitimate son. He, he often argued with his theological colleagues and, and insisted upon the superiority of his theories, even though they were kind of condemned again and again by the church. Now, before the end, happily, he submitted to her authority with a spirit of faith and died in full communion with the church. And St. Bernard and also St. Peter the Venerable, who kind of was referee between the two of them, really really assisted in that reconciliation. Because Bernard was, um, he was instrumental in the church's condemnation of certain of the teachings of Abelard and Mostly what Bernard contested was the overly intellectualistic method of, of Abelard. You know, he would treat truths, um, truths of the faith, like mere opinions, as though they were detached from the revelation of God. And this fear was not unfounded. You know, for example, uh, an excessive use of philosophy dangerously weakened Abelard's Trinitarian um, teaching. And in the moral field, he sometimes was ambiguous. For example, he insisted that the intention of the subject is the sole source for defining the good or evil of a moral act, ignoring the objective value of the actions. That's, that's situational ethics. You know, I alone decide what's good for me in any particular situation without respect to an objective moral order. You know, and Benedict points out that how important that is today when we are suffering under the burden of this moral relativism. Uh, but, but at the same time, though, he says that for all his faults, Abelard had great merits and that his contributions to the development of scholastic theology would bear uh, better fruit in the uh, following century. But in contrast, Pope Benedict said that St. Bernard's concern for our intimate participation in God's love in Christ brought no new guidelines to the scientific study of theology. However, in a more decisive manner than ever, the abbot of Clairvaux embodies the theologian the contemplative, and the mystic. In the face of the complex dialectical reasoning of his time, Bernard insists that Jesus alone is honey in the mouth, song to the ear, jubilation in the heart. That's where his title, Dr. Mellifluous, stems precisely from this, that the praise of Christ flowed like honey from his mouth. And that, dear brother and sisters, is true of every Christian, that the most important thing is a personal and profound experience of Jesus Christ. And that's no nonsense. Back with more right after this. Stay with us.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. Join VMPR live on YouTube September 12, 2020 for our latest free conference, The Ultimate Challenge. This exclusive virtual event will feature a brand new talk from Jesse Romero, How Apologetics Brought Me Back to Faith, plus never-before-broadcast video presentations from Dr. Scott Hahn, Father Mitch Pacwa, and the late, great Father Benedict Groeschel. Go to vmpr.org to register now and get ready to face the ultimate challenge. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, talking about the confrontation between the monastic and scholastic schools of uh, theology personified in St. Bernard and Peter Abelard. Um, and and this, the debate between monastic theology and scholastic theology was often heated and result, uh, resulted in condemnation. So what have we learned from it? See, firstly, according to Benedict XVI, it demonstrates the usefulness and really the need for healthy theological discussion within the church, especially when the questions at hand are not defined by the magisterium. But acknowledging that the magisterium remains our certain reference point. St. Bernard, even Abelard himself, unhesitatingly recognized the authority of the church. Uh, furthermore, Abelard's condemnation on various occasions reminds us that in theology, there has to be a balance between the, the, shall we say, the architectural principles that are given us by the revelation, which must always have priority, and in the principles for interpretation, which are suggested by our philosophical approach, uh, or uh, by reason. Uh, and, and Benedict points out that that has a, a important but exclusively practical role. That's why I say you, 
you have to believe in order to understand. You don't do Catholic theology. You don't start from zero. You start with the deposit of faith and go from there. Because when this balance between the architecture and the instruments of interpretation is lacking, theological reflection risks going off the rails. And then it's the duty of the magisterium, uh, in the words of Benedict XVI, quote, to exercise that necessary service to the truth which belongs to it, unquote, which is a nice way of saying to anathematize the heresy. And it's well to remember that the reason that Bernard took sides against Abelard in the first place and ultimately called for the intervention of the magisterium regarding his teaching, it was his concern to defend the, the simple believer from confusion and from being misled by you know, personal opinions or these novel theological arguments that might endanger his faith. Pope Benedict also pointed out that the, the theological confrontation between Bernard and Abelard ended with their complete reconciliation. And it was, like I say, it was brokered uh, by Peter the Venerable, who was the abbot of Cluny. But Abelard showed real humility in admitting his errors, and St. Bernard showed great charity and patience. And in the process, they both upheld the most important value in a theological controversy, which is to preserve the church's faith on the one hand and to seek in charity the triumph of the truth. Pope Benedict said this should be the attitude with which we confront one another in the church today, to have as our goal the constant quest for truth. And once again, according to our, our Pope Emeritus, he said, in echoing the invitation of the first letter of Peter, scholastic theology stimulates us to be ever ready to account for the hope that is in us. It reminds us that a natural friendship exists between faith and reason, founded in the order of creation itself. In his encyclical, Fides et Ratio, that is, Faith and Reason, St. John Paul II wrote, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. Faith is open to the effort of understanding by reason, and reason, in turn, recognizes that faith impels her towards vaster and loftier horizons, which is the, uh, the eternal lesson of monastic theology. Uh, let's see here. In the end, it emerges that St. Bernard's teaching are characteristic of a person who is in love with Jesus Christ and his Blessed Mother. And I would say that that is why his writings continue to provide a valuable motivation, not just to theologians, but to rank-and-file Catholics, believers like you and me. You know, there are always those who claim that they've solved the fundamental questions about God and, and humanity and the world with the, you know, the power of reason alone. Whereas St. Bernard, solidly founded on the Bible and the fathers of the church, reminds us that without a profound faith in God, nourished by prayer and contemplation, that is, this, this intimate relation with the Lord, then our reflections on the divine mysteries risk becoming just an empty intellectual exercise. Theology refers us back to the knowledge of the saints, to their intuition of the mysteries of the living God and to their wisdom, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit and which becomes a reference point for theological thought. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And so together with St. Bernard of Clairvaux, we must recognize that man seeks God better 
and finds him more easily in prayer than in discussion. And that's no nonsense. Okay, I mentioned that I went to the Novus Ordo this Sunday. It was my son's confirmation, my, my number three son. And it is, as always, inspiring to see that even in the midst of all that's going on, that uh, everything that's going on in the church and the world, we have these young people receiving the grace to become soldiers of Christ. Um, we are blessed that our parish is administered by an order of religious priests. And the one, you know, uh, bright spot in the midst of all this corona lockdown nonsense is the fact that the uh, the priests are saying Mass in a very sober... You know, I mean, the Norbertines say Mass in a more sober and reverent way anyway. I mean, just typically. But it's nice to have Mass in the ordinary form without an army of lay people trooping in and out of the sanctuary. You know, without without the all the lay ministers, the lectors, and the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and the cantors and all of that, just to have the priest there doing what the priest does is uh, you know, and and doing it well and reverently. Um, but it is, like I said, it's beautiful to see these young people embracing this sacrament and all that it entails. And not the least because since the 1960s, millions of people have abandoned the faith. You know, And that's not just a faithless multitude. Like I've often said, this is, these are people you know. These are friends you grew up with, members of your own family. Some of them become Protestants or evangelicals. Some of them join non-Christian religions, embrace you know, New Age spirituality. Some become agnostics or even atheists. In fact, that's the fastest growing sector right now. But they've all got one thing in common— if you ask them, why did you leave the church? And they're going to give you a reason. The church is too old-fashioned. The church is intolerant. The church isn't biblical. Mass is boring. Religious people are hypocrites. Uh, the church is hung up on sex. Religion is a crutch. I can worship God in my own way, etc., etc. And I know that many people have been wounded in their relationship with the church or less than perfect members of the church, uh, which is pretty much all of us. But whatever reason serious or shallow, people who have left the church can typically tell you why they left. But, and this is the recurring theme here on No Nonsense Catholic, what about us? What about you and me? What about those of us who are faithful to the church? What do you say when somebody asks, why do you stay in the church? Why do you believe in the Eucharist? Why do you follow the Pope? Why do you uh, pray to Mary? Why are you Catholic? In the Bible, and uh, Benedict XVI alluded to this, talking about scholastic theology, St. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Because if you don't have a reason for what you believe, then you run your risk of losing your faith when it's challenged, just like millions before you. So our greatest defense, yours and mine and those young confirmandi, uh, the answer to why you are Catholic, really, I think, is the sacramental life. You know, so many of our separated brethren uh, believe that so long as you um, believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, then you are absolutely assured of your salvation. But that's, that's not really very biblical. 
Yeah, you need a personal relationship with Christ, just like St. Bernard. But most important, uh, the most intimate part of that relationship is encountering Christ in the sacraments. What did Jesus say? Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The sacramental life. Belief and baptism go together. Jesus says, I am the living bread come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He's talking about eternal life. So once again, according to Jesus, salvation and communion, receiving the Eucharist and achieving eternal life go together. And so it is with the other sacraments. The saving work of Jesus Christ didn't end in the first century when he ascended into heaven. The saving work of Christ is continued through his body, the church. So the first essential element of the sacramental life is the church itself. Pardon me, that's why I was saying that it was a happy coincidence that um, my son's confirmation mass should fall on the Sunday when we're reading from Matthew 16, verses 13 and following. Jesus asked the apostles, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets, John the Baptist. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not, you are Peter, go build me a church. Not, um, you will build, you know, build yourself a church. (laughs) I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. There's a lot in here. And I know that we put a lot of stock on Jesus changing Simon's name to Peter. You know, when they very first meet in John uh, chapter 1, verse 42, Jesus says, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. St. John give us, gives us the Aramaic Cephas and tells us that it's Peter in Greek. Right, because Cephas is the Aramaic for rock, and we make a lot out of Peter being the rock. But there's something very important, very subtle in this passage from Matthew 16 that a lot of people miss, and that's the significance of Jesus before the name change, calling him Simon Barjona. What that means, and the special implication it has regarding the sacramental life is what we're going to talk about when we come back from the break. So stay with us. I'm Matthew Arnold. You are listening to No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we will be right back after this.
Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eye to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code VMPR Live Porn Free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back, No-Nonsense Catholic, your home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. Before the break, talking about Matthew 16, where um, Jesus says to Simon, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. Now, since, as we just saw, Simon uh, Peter's father, uh, his name is John. So why does Jesus call him son of Jonah, Barjona? He's speaking symbolically. And just like John, who retained the Aramaic word kephos, Matthew, in his gospel, is careful to retain the Aramaic words Simon Barjona, because Jonah means dove in Aramaic. So Simon says to Jesus, you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to Simon, literally, you are rock, son of the dove. And he's pointing to the relationship between Peter and the Holy Spirit. This is the same spirit that confirmed Jesus' sonship in the form of a dove at his baptism and now inspires uh, Peter's confession of faith. And just as the Father's voice was heard at the baptism with the appearance of the dove, so with Peter, Jesus says, you're the son of the dove because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but the Father in heaven. So Simon, son of the dove, and his successors, the popes, have a special relationship 
with the Holy Spirit. And just look at the scriptures. St. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.20, Know this first of all, there is no prophecy of scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. For no prophecy ever came through human will, but rather men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. The Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets. But who decides which are the true prophets and which are the false prophets? Simon, son of the dove. Simon, with the rock-like faith in Christ, given by the Father in heaven. Simon, called Peter. He and his successors will have that unerring, infallible voice of the true shepherd. It's through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have a church. It's through the gift of the Holy Spirit that the church enjoys the presence of Jesus and carries on his saving mission of saving souls, by the way. That is the mission. And the church does this by means of the sacraments, which Jesus gives to his church through the Spirit. Uh, In the Eucharistic Discourse in John chapter 6, Jesus says, It is the Spirit that gives life. The words I have spoken are spirit and life. Forty days after the resurrection, just before he ascends into heaven, Jesus promises to send another paraclete, a helper, a comforter, an advocate. John 14, 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in my name, he will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. So for nine days, the apostles, the Blessed Mother, the Holy Women, and some 120 disciples gather in the upper room where Christ celebrated the Last Supper. And then on Pentecost, we read, Suddenly they heard the sound like a mighty wind, and the Holy Spirit descended upon them in the forms of flames of fire. And they were filled with courage, and they immediately began to preach the good news. Now, the apostles would never have had the courage to do it if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only helped them to remember everything that Jesus said, but to finally understand its deeper meaning. And they experienced a sense of hope because of the consolation of the Spirit. And they were guided in what to say and what to do by the same Spirit. And Jesus promised that his Holy Spirit would always guide the church until the day he returns in glory at the end of time. It was on Pentecost that Peter made that famous first sermon, that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins and had been raised from the dead. And what happened? 3,000 people accepted Jesus into their hearts as their personal Lord and Savior. The scripture says 3,000 people were baptized. They were received into the church. They received the Holy Spirit. And we receive the Holy Spirit in baptism. And then each of us experiences his own personal Pentecost at confirmation. It's at baptism we receive the Holy Spirit. Through baptism, the, the Spirit cleanses us of original sin, makes us children of God, members of the church, gives us a right to go to heaven. But he also takes away all the personal sins that we've committed before baptism and even the temporal and eternal punishment due to those sins. And most important, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So receive the Holy Spirit in baptism, we receive special gifts of the Spirit in confirmation. In the gospel, the, the rich young man asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the young fellow rather glibly replies, this I have done from my youth. 
So Jesus says, well, then you are not very far from perfection. You're not far from the kingdom. Just sell all you have and come follow me. And what happens? The scripture says he went away sad. Maybe, just maybe, this fellow wasn't following the commandments quite as scrupulously as he thinks he was. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you have to be born from above of water and the Spirit. Rich young guy can't do it without the grace of the Holy Spirit. He tells Nicodemus you have to be born from above, water and the Spirit. That's baptism. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. Jesus says, do not be amazed that I told you you must be born from above. The wind blows where it will. And you can hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In New Testament Greek, the words, uh, well, the word pneuma uh, is translated variously as spirit or breath or wind. It's all the same word. And translators decide through context which one is the most appropriate translation. But the point is they're all connected. And what we get from this is that in order to keep the commandments, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And we receive him in baptism and receive his gifts in confirmation. John 14, uh, verses 15 and following, Jesus tells the apostles, If you love me, keep the commandments. Keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, who will stay with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it cannot see him or know him. But you will know him, because he remains with you and will be in you. Keep my commandments. What were Jesus' commandments? Love God with your whole mind, heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And for that, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we read in the book of Acts how Peter and John have to go to Samaria and pray over uh, the Samaritans and lay on hands so they could receive the Holy Spirit. Scripture says, For it had not fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What does that passage tell us? Anyone can baptize in a pinch, right? We know this. But you need a bishop of the church for the sacrament of confirmation and the unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. John want, uh, God wants us to keep his commandments, but we can't do it without his help. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Jesus and the Father send the Holy Spirit to give us the help we need through the seven gifts of the Spirit. And it's interesting to note that the gifts of the Spirit, what we um, typically um, think of as the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are received in confirmation, are enumerated by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11. Right? Even though the, you know, the revelation of the Holy Trinity is only made explicit in the New Testament, it's only made clear in the teaching of Jesus, This is one of the many places of the Old Testament where we get a glimpse of the reality of the three persons in God. And that shows you, I mean, going back to what we were talking about earlier in the show, it goes the importance of the the spiritual sense of Scripture, the allegorical sense that St. Bernard employed, and why that's necessary. Now, the spirits, uh, the gifts of the Spirit of God enumerated, sorry, rented lips, let me back up here. (laughs) 
the gifts of the Spirit of God enumerated by the prophet are knowledge, understanding, wisdom, counsel, fortitude, piety, and fear of the Lord. And all of those gifts build upon one another to help us live the sacramental life. So knowledge, right? The meaning and purpose of life, know, love, and serve God. It begins with knowledge. But then we need understanding to comprehend and appreciate that knowledge. And then in order to apply that knowledge, that understanding to our lives requires wisdom. And then we need counsel to help us discern the best way to do it, to apply that knowledge, to do the right thing. But of course, many times it's difficult to do the right thing, so we have the gift of fortitude to give us the courage to do what we know to be the best thing. And it's consistently doing the right thing that leads to the gift of piety, which is the gift of loving God above all else, which is to fill the the great commandment uh, of Jesus and to understand the words of the apostle when he says we must serve God rather than men. And finally, fear of the Lord, which is um, most often today they, they refer to fear of the Lord as awe. Or, or respect, right? The, the understanding, the relationship uh, between God and man. In justice, uh, it means to give God his due. And I would maintain that in the Old Testament, fear of the Lord primarily refers to right worship. The Old Testament uh, animal sacrifices, that was only, again, a typological, an allegorical foreshadowing of the great act of worship Uh, where we today offer to God the only truly acceptable sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of the cross, which is made present sacramentally at the Holy Mass, which leads us to the Holy Eucharist, which is the very heart of the sacramental life. And but before we talk about that, I, I want to talk about the other sacraments briefly beginning with the one that we should receive most often, which is Holy or after Holy communion, which is the sacrament of penance or confession. And I don't imagine we're going to get through all the sacraments today, especially Holy Eucharist, so we'll probably have to continue next week. But in the meantime, we will come back, talk about confession uh, and the sacramental life when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after these messages. Stay with us. Ernesto from Long Beach. You know, I just wanted to comment, you know, and I just wanted to thank you guys. And I kind of wanted to encourage people that are listening, maybe that are not donating, you know, because honestly, I got to be honest, I used to think you guys were a little too over the top, time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You That's know, right. If God gave us a lot, you know, and I'm, I have the blessing of listening to all this, I just want to call all the people, you know, I got five kids, you know, and I don't make a lot of money, and I'm still donating to you guys. God bless you, brother. You're amazing. We gotta. We have to do this. We have to do the extra. And it's not even the extra. People see it like it's extra. Kneeling for communion, saying your rosary, saying the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It is not extra. It's what the church tells us to do. Amen. You're a good man, brother. 30 years old, 29 years old five kids and i thank you guys but everybody else man get on fire fight for the truth man i know what i'm telling you guys there's i so love it out there 
Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. According to St. John Paul II, being a Christian means saying yes to Jesus Christ. It consists in surrendering to the word of God and relying on it, but also endeavoring to know better and better the profound meaning of this word. May God grant that we always rely on his word, read it often, and put it into practice. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, talking about the, the sacraments and the sacramental life as the key to remaining in the church, that deep uh, understanding. And we were talking about... Um, the sacrament of penance, and how that is the, the one sacrament that we receive most often, uh, probably after Holy Communion. Uh, confessions is connected to the Eucharist through the sacrament of holy orders. And Jesus instituted the priesthood of the Last Supper when he told the apostles, do this uh, for a commemoration of me. But it wasn't until after the resurrection that he imparted the fullness of holy orders. You know, at RCIA, I will ask the Catholics there who are coming in for their confirmation, I'll say, uh, when did the Holy Spirit first come to the church? And the knee-jerk reaction is, or response is Pentecost. But really, it was Easter. Jesus appeared in the upper room and said to the apostles, as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. Give them that power to bind and loose, to forgive sins. These are the two great powers of the priesthood, to change bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ and to forgive sins in his name. So the Spirit comes upon the apostles in a special way on Easter, and then 50 days later, the Spirit descends upon the whole church. And it's appropriate that it happens that way chronologically, because as we've already noted, confirmation requires holy orders. It must be conferred by a bishop or, or by a priest uh, deputed by a bishop, given that the faculty. And that faculty only lasts for the one confirmation. You know, confession also requires holy orders. You can confess to me if you want, by the way, and I'll be happy to forgive you. <laughs> but if you want absolution, you need to go to see a priest, likewise with the Holy Eucharist. And only a priest can offer the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And you'll find that, uh, you don't have time to, to read it, but uh, James chapter 5, verses 14 and following, right there in the very pages of the Holy Bible, are the five distinct elements of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. You have the presbyter, right, the priest, prayer, anointing, confession, and the Eucharist. So the church says anointing of the sick gives health and strength to the soul and sometimes the body of the very sick or old or those in danger of death. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says one of the signs that will accompany his followers is 
They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So why is it that the sacrament gives health and strength only sometimes to the body? Well, I think about Jesus and the paralyzed man. After, you know, the, the four friends bring the, the man who's paralyzed his arms and legs to Jesus, and he's so moved by their faith that he forgives his sins. And then the Pharisees kind of get upset. It's like, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, um, what's more difficult, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to tell a paraplegic to get up and pick up your mat and go home? And of course, that's precisely what Jesus did. He restored both the man's spiritual and physical health, but he clearly shows which is the more important. The healing of the body was only to prove the more important healing of the soul. So the anointing of the sick gives strength to the soul, health and strength to the soul, and sometimes to the body. And the last sacrament um, we were going to talk about before we get to the Eucharist, which we'll talk about next week, uh, I think, is holy matrimony. Marriage was instituted by God in paradise. Adam says, here at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And that's covenant language. Two parties becoming one family. Uh, And it's a union that could never be broken so that they might love each other for life and raise up children. Now, Jesus elevated this natural marriage to the supernatural level of the sacrament of matrimony. Um, so that husbands and wives would receive the grace to live together for better or worse until death do us part in faithful love and to take care of the souls of the children that God might give them. You know, we had seen that natural marriage uh, had suffered from divorce, but Jesus says from the beginning, that's not, that's not the plan. That's not the way it was supposed to be. So marriage becomes holy matrimony where a man and woman give themselves to each other and to Christ and then in return receive the grace they need to fulfill their duties of married life. Uh, Matthew ta- or Jesus rather talks about it in Matthew 19. He says, where what God has joined together, no man must separate. See, unlike marriage, matrimony is more than a mere contract. It's not, you know, until further notice. Holy matrimony is sacred. It's a lifelong union. And you'll notice that the LGBTQ plus crowd has never called for same-sex matrimony. (laughs) Marriage, yes, but not same-sex matrimony. And it's just as well, because there can never be such a thing as same-sex matrimony. Because for a sacrament to be valid, you have to have the proper matter and the proper form and the proper minister. Now, the, um, pardon me. Sorry, I got a little frog in my throat. In matrimony... The matter is one man and one woman. And the husband and wife are also the ministers of the sacrament. And the priest is there as the witness of the church who blesses the union. Now you add or subtract anything to that and there's no sacrament. Matrimony is both a union and a communion. Because the spouses give themselves to one another and give themselves for one another without reserve in an unbreakable bond of life-giving love. Now, because of the, uh, all of the sacraments give grace, St. Paul says all who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. But the Holy Eucharist is unique amongst the sacraments because only in the Eucharist do we receive not only the grace of Christ, 
but we receive Christ himself, body and blood and soul and divinity under the appearance, the accidents of bread and wine. The church calls the Eucharist the source and summit of the Christian life. And that's because Jesus is present in the Eucharist. And he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the, the, the source of the journey and the ultimate goal. And it's painful to me that our separated brethren don't see this, that they miss out on this. Now, we're going to talk about the Eucharist next week. But before we go, I would like to share a little uh, story about an encounter I had with one of our separated brethren years ago. I hadn't been Catholic very long. And I really came, I didn't have uh, any kind of uh, religious formation as a kid growing up. I was generically Christian. You know, we had a Christmas tree. And we said our prayers before bedtime and that sort of thing. But uh, grace before meals. But my family had fallen away from the practice of uh, going to church when I was still a toddler. So I didn't really have a lot of, you know, I didn't have a lot of baggage with me in regard to, you know, uh, non-Catholic Christian theologies or whatever. And um, so the Holy Eucharist was just, boy, that just made so much sense to me. But I'm talking to this Baptist fellow, and he was very upset. He said, that wafer's not Jesus, he says. And, you know, we talked back and forth. And I took him to John chapter 6, and it says, you know, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, um, you know, you have eternal life and I will raise you on the last day, right? All this, my, my flesh is, is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. I said, what do you think he's talking about? And the fellow said, he, that means you have to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. And I said, but that's not what it says. And he says, yeah, well, that's what it means. And, and back and forth we go. And we'd reached an impasse, clearly. We both knew what the scripture said, but we were, you know, our antagonism was, what does it mean? And... I finally said to him, would you accept St. John's interpretation of this? If, if I could produce John the Evangelist right now, and, and he said, this is what Jesus meant, would you accept that? And he said, yes. Now, I suspect he was confident that I was not going to produce St. John the Evangelist at that point. Uh, but he was also aware. He's like, yeah. And I say to him, well, you know, John had a disciple named Polycarp, and he believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and taught it explicitly. And Polycarp had a disciple named Ignatius. And he taught about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And on and on and on, down through the centuries and unto our own day. Now, I don't know if that sunk in. I don't know. I never saw this fellow again, never spoke to him again. Because it was actually on the telephones. I never, I never saw him in the first place, but I never spoke to him again. So I don't know if I managed to plant a seed or not, but I did stop and make him think. All of the sacraments give us God's grace because as Paul says, all who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. But the Eucharist alone, as I said, gives us Jesus himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Because for all of these sacraments, what's necessary? What do you have to have? You have to have the church. You know, not only can you not have sacraments without the church, you can't even begin to understand the Bible without the church. And that's why theologians, even today, theologians who call themselves Catholics sometimes go off the rails because, as I said in the beginning of the program, they try and start from zero 
instead of starting with the deposit of the faith, we have the revelation of God and we have 2,000 years of tradition and that's the, that is the duty of the church. That's what the magisterium is about. It's not just about giving definitive answers when questions arise, which is the, the important office of the magisterium, the teaching office of the church. But the church itself, the hierarchy, hierarchy of the church, has as its main purpose the defense and the promulgation of the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith, the, the revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. Deposit of faith was entrusted to the church by Christ and the Twelve. And, you know, we are in real danger of going off the rails when we try and do theology or try and do Bible study, uh, starting with the premise that, well, I'm going to approach the Bible as though it were any other piece of literature. No, you approach the Bible uh, beginning with what the church teaches about it, and then you go from there and find deeper understanding of the deposit of faith, not looking for something new that hasn't been discovered before. As I say, typically uh, speaking, generally speaking, if you come up with some new idea about the faith, chances are, you know, congratulations, you're a heretic, <laughs> number one. And number two, if you look long enough, you'll probably find out that somebody was there before you and the church has already explained it. All right. So great to be with you every week. I'm Matthew Arnold, and I want to say thank you so much to everybody who supports this program and all of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, not only with your your prayers and your good wishes, but also with your financial um, assistance. So you can always go to our website, bmpr.org. You can call the office, 877-526-2151. Send a little something our way. We'd appreciate it. Go to Patreon, lots of different ways. Uh, and it's all on the website, vmpr.org. Till next time, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.